This episode of The Tome Show is brought to you by listeners like you. Thanks for using The Tome's Amazon and D&D Classics affiliate links. Hey, this is Mike Merles, lead developer of 4th Edition, and you're listening to The Tome. Welcome to The Tome, a D&D news, reviews, and interview show, and I'm your Tome host, Jeff Greiner. And I'm Tracy Hurley, and in this episode, number 239, we're revising, playtesting, and coming out with a new edition of ourselves as we talk to Mike Rolls about the 5th edition of D&D. We don't want to keep you waiting too long, but if you like the show, please consider using our affiliate links to Amazon and D&D Classics over at thetomeshow.com. I know you're shopping there, those places anyway, so why not go ahead and use our links and the show gets a little bit of support. Alright, on with the interview. Tracy? Thanks, Jeff. We're here now with Mike Merles, lead designer for D&D at Wizards of the Coast. Mike, welcome back to the show. Great. Thanks for having me on. So we've talked a little bit about some of this in the past, but if you could sort of review the playtest process from the WOTC side of things, um, going over you know the insights that you've gained, everything that happened uh, from public playtest to the alpha playtesting to the private and in-house playtesting and all that sort of stuff, so people sort of have that frame of reference. Yeah, so we started the playtest, let's see now, it would have been early 2012 was the first release. Uh, Or no, it would have been more more like May, in in either case. So yeah, a lot of the goal of the public playtest was to get a real sense of what does a typical person playing D&D, as the tabletop role-playing game, obviously, uh, what do they value and what is it that they're looking for out of the game? Uh, I think that what had happened over time was there's a lot of in, in, in role playing games like any other like you know form of creation. There's different trends and there's different you know here's the the prevailing wisdom. And I think what had happened was with the launch of third edition and, and part of this now what I'm about to kind of explain is based on what we've learned. So it wasn't necessarily where we started, but the um, there was a sense of you know that with with three O RPGs were getting were getting more complex, especially you know like traditional game designs as opposed to indie games. And there's a sense that rules had to be very comprehensive. Um, you wanted to rule for everything. And that building a player character was the real thing that drove people to play the game. So, you know, you wanted to choose your feats, your prestige class, and whatnot. The, um, and the suspicion was, what, when we started, we didn't really have an answer to this. But our suspicion was that there was a gap that had formed. That you had your audience and people who wanted to play RPGs. And then you had the way our, we were designing D&D and thinking about it. And a lot of it started with this idea of, well, what were the things that made people get into D&D in the first place? And a lot of that was, you know, just thinking back to our own experiences was, well, you know, the idea of role playing, you know, you kind of adopt this different persona in a way you can't really do in, I say, a video game. Um, And this idea of it's a world where, you know, you can try anything. You're in a fantasy world. There's magic. There's monsters. If you want to go east, you can go east. If you want to go west, you can go west. If you want to start a war, you can do that. There's a lot of flexibility there. Uh, And then finally, this idea that you're with a group. It's not just by yourself. There's an alchemy of, you know, four or five people at a table playing this game together, something comes out of that. So we had this idea, but we didn't know if it was true or not. And we figured the only way to really, you know, confirm like this kind of thought of ours, that this is where things had gone with RPG design and they'd gotten off track, was through the public playtest. Was to say, look, if we create a game that kind of fits some of these things we're thinking about, is that something that's going to resonate with the audience? The, um, and so in a lot of ways, a lot of that stuff was confirmed. You know, what we saw pretty consistently was the simplest character options were the most popular. Um, that the um, the idea of like you know an edition war thing like you know people you know people like second edition they hate everything else or they only like third or whatever uh, that really didn't jive with what we were finding I mean really what we saw were there people wanted things out of D and D and they may have said I like this edition better than this other edition like they may have picked a favorite 
but it seemed fairly rare that people would pick one like they didn't like. It was more just, you know, I like this edition, and a lot of times it'd be because that maybe it might be the one they started with. Was the there a they... broad range of people playing different editions? I mean, you're clearly obviously speaking to your own audience, and, and at that yeah. time that was the fourth edition audience, but did you bring in other people that weren't necessarily fourth edition players? Yeah, and it was actually, it was one of the things that helped us feel like we were on the right track was we really did see, now, I think there's just a natural turnover in D&D. Like, a lot of us, like, people, you know, all of us in this interview, and probably a lot of people listening, are pretty hardcore role players. We'll probably role play for our entire adult lives. But in most people play the game and then drop out after a few years. There's just a natural cycle to it. You know, you just you don't have as much time to play, and you don't have a gaming group and all that other stuff. So because of that, we saw a real cluster of mostly, you know, third and fourth edition. People who would name third or fourth as their favorite edition. But we did see good-sized numbers of people naming earlier editions, but it did tend to be it tended to be like fourth would be the most popular, then third, then second, then first. You know, really just based on the release date. Mm-hmm. The um, and what we saw that was encouraging was if we looked at the responses based on the fav- favorite edition, it any differences were really just noise. You know, if, if I'll use an example like the advantage mechanic, where in, instead of having a lot of little modifiers, you just roll twice and take the highest or lowest, and there wasn't like oh fourth edition fans really like this and second edition fans hate it. It was more like 80-something percent of people overall think this is cool and they like it. They like the change. And that 80% is pretty like, okay, fourth edition fans, well, it's 80-something it's percent. Third edition fans, it's 80-something percent, right? It, was, it would be consistent across the editions. Good mechanics the, were good mechanics regardless of what your favorite edition was. Exactly. Okay. And, and, that, and that confirmed to us this idea that D&D, while the editions obviously for some people give them a, a, a reason to have a conflict, for most people – it really was just a matter of, well, which edition did I start with? You know, which edition am I most comfortable with? You know, and, and it wasn't something like, oh, everyone likes third edition because that's the one that did X, Y, and Z, and so that's all anyone plays. It was much more, oh, people just like playing D&D. Yeah. The, um, and I, I think it was, it was fairly consistent to the point I can't recall a single mechanic where, like, one edition, like, oh, the fans of one edition liked it. You know, well, people who named one edition their favorite preferred it. Even things like I always remember when our first uh, play test at Winter Fantasy in 2012, uh, everyone was NDA. This was before the open play test. And there was one survey with a guy uh, said, you know, the first edition was his favorite edition. And his entire feedback was, wow, you know, at will spells. This is amazing, right? Like he was just, it was so <laughs> clearly like he hadn't played fourth. Clearly he couldn't have, right? Because it was the way he was writing, it was clear like he had never seen this before, you know, in D&B as an official thing. And probably hadn't played anything with late third, you know? So it was kind of cool to see someone going, yeah, I haven't really, you know, first edition is my favorite, but I love the idea of a wizard or a cleric being able to cast a spell without, you know, without running out of magic, you know, mm-hmm. without running out of magic. So that to me kind of felt like, oh, that's kind of the entire process in a nutshell, you know, that th- there are people online who obviously, you know, edition war. And, but, you know, the thing is, I've been online since, what, 1993, uh, which is not not as long as some people, but longer than others. But in any case, that's 21 years ago. And I remember seeing the arguments of like, you know, is GURPS better than Champions for a universal system? You know, why would anyone play D&D? Everyone should be playing Role Master. It, it was the same arguments. I just think what's happened is now instead of it being Role Master versus D&D or GURPS versus Champions or, you know, World of Darkness versus Call of Cthulhu or whatever, now it's just editions of D&D have entered the fray. You know, and, and I don't think anyone back then would have said, oh, if you play GURPS and you must hate champions or something like that. Right. You know, it just, it's just because I think there's this narrative. Well, of course, now we kind of have this chain of additions Then it must be that there's, you know, people no one wants to play fourth who like third and vice versa and things like that. And it, it just that just didn't pan out, which was great, because obviously we would have been in, I think we would have been in real trouble if we had saw that. If you like fourth, you did not like anything else. And if you like third, you didn't like anything else. Right. And you know, oh, the fourth edition players like advantage, but everyone else hates it. And that would have been that would have been a real sign. Like I don't, I think at that stage we would have just been okay. We're just gonna make <laughs> material for all the editions. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, it just would have yeah. been. Yeah. And, 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 oh, sorry. Oh no, uh, I was just gonna say that goes well with. Uh, my own experiences running D and D next at a, in a convention setting because I did like sixteen hours mm-hmm. and uh, with of people who had come from all different backgrounds and they really just gelled with it very easily. Um, and mm-hmm. even people who had played like second edition were very happy with their experience. Mm-hmm. And we were also able to get uh, brand new players in too. 
So. Cool. Yeah, and that was part of it too. Was you know seeing that um, the approval, you know, like people liking the simpler options, that was a, a relief too because we knew we really needed to create a game that new players could get into. That I think for RPGs as a whole, and specifically for for traditional RPGs, again, as opposed to indie games, which I think in a lot of indie games have really focused on pick up and play. You know, mm-hmm. you're going to play a fiasco, and it's going to here you can explain it to your friends very quickly, sit down and play, and in in an hour or two, whatever, then you're done. Mm-hmm. The um, I think for traditional games, you know, the 300-page rulebook has become the norm. Now, speaking as a guy who's publishing a 300-page rulebook, you know, what do I have to say? You know, it's, but, but I think that we really kind of lost sight of, well, that's not, that shouldn't necessarily be someone's first step. You know? and, and that's a lot of why you know, we have the starter set, which is really just uh, an adventure with enough rules around it for that new DM to crack it open and run that first campaign. Uh, basic D&D being free and being uh, an ebook, you know, PDF, and, and fairly streamlined, you know, and, and that being kind of the next step. And really thinking of those 300-page rulebooks is like, well, this is really aimed at more advanced players, right? We don't, like, it's great if someone can buy the player's handbook, uh, put, put their money down, and just learn from that. Right. That's awesome, right? But that's not, why would we expect people to do that yeah. when you can just yeah. give them easier paths? You know, it's just, and I think that's something that's really hurt tabletop role-playing over the past, say, 14, 15 years, since 3.0 came out. I think when 3.0 came out, it had a ton of strengths. It was a great game. I loved it. But I think there was an unintended consequence of it kind of reset the, that baseline of complexity for RPGs as a whole mm-hmm. at a much higher level than it had been, say, under 2nd edition, you know, where yeah. 2E had giant books, but it also, I mean, it comes down to the rules are fairly straightforward. You know, it was, you, it was, it was a pretty, pretty easy game to get, you know, say, pick up one, one of the starter sets that TSR and then Wizards did. <laughs> It was it, it was a hefty book because there were fifteen different systems to ch- to do yeah. things. <laughs> exactly. you know? Yeah. Well, and I started. Oh, sorry. Okay. Oh, I was just gonna say I started with fourth edition, and mm-hmm. I remember I was because I I was I did it as a surprise for my husband, so I couldn't ask him for help with my character sheet, so I had to do it all on my own during my lunches. And it wasn't until I found a somebody had made a spreadsheet online. I'm sorry, and that is how I finally figured out how to actually fill in all the stats because yeah. it did it for me. And but I could see like how changing this changed that, and that helped me figure out what I was supposed to do. Exactly. Yeah. No. It's a lot of there's a lot of assumed information uh, in, in any RPG, you know, because it's so it's such a there's nothing like an RPG, right? Like, there's no right. other game that's like it. And so you're already dealing with that. You know, how do you explain to people how to play this game? And then now here's all the rules and the math behind it. The um, And that's been a big thing with Next. We've really tried to make it so that, well, fifth, I can call it fifth now. Yeah. <laughs> that we're the, uh, Are we ever going to lose the, the Next yeah. moniker now? It is it is it is not an official name in any way, shape, or form. It is it is gone. But it's still, I'm still going to be using it. Uh-huh. Probably. But the, uh, it it kind of sounds cool, though. It's edgy. Yeah, it's next year when it's like last. It's not going to be. <laughs> but the um, you know, trying to make the math obvious in, in the sense of like, okay, like here's what your strength means, here's what your your proficiency bonus means, and hopefully make those relationships clear. Because Tracy, I think that's a great point. Like, I think it's that's what really throws people. The math is not it's it's addition and subtraction, but it's un- understanding well why does this work this way or what numbers go into making my armor class like and wh- why is it those numbers and, and and what are the exceptions to it and stuff. Yeah. So yeah, we really try to kind of make things more straightforward. The um, and that's definitely a big goal of the game. Yeah, and feeling confident in my character sheet helped me at my first game because I'd been playing with most of the people at the table had been playing over twenty years, so yeah. that was like a big thing for me and it was nice. No, and, and, and people who've been playing RPGs for a while tremendously underrate how intimidating it is to sit down and play a role-playing game for the first time with people who've been playing for 20 years, you know, like, like, with, like your experience, right? The, I mean, people, I think as humans, we're kind of hardwired to not want to be embarrassed, you know, and the first time you do anything, especially if there's all this pressure, like now you have to make a decision, you have to do something, you're part of a team, you know, right. and you, you pull your weight, the... Um, you know, it's it's very stressful. It's very stressful for people, and I think it's easy to overlook that and forget what it's like. I essentially, I was lucky in the sense I, my first, I was a kid when I first started playing, so I was playing also with all new players. We didn't know the rules, you know. We were right. trying to figure. Out. But the, getting people into the first time, it's it's very difficult first step. I think it's one. I think it's one of the the challenges the hobby has always faced is making that first step as easy as possible. Um, you know, a game like Magic or uh, you know anything competitive or a board game. You, you can you can kind of go in knowing you're probably going to lose in your first start against, but you get to learn. 
And I think right. the RPGs are hard because that learning curve is not always obvious. You know. Well, it's also it's also a competitive thing, right? So in Magic, you you go up against somebody with similar experience to you, and you'll do fine. You both learn yep. together. With an RPG, you're you don't have that you know that experience. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're D and D adjacent at all, you'll know like TPKs are the most horrible thing ever for some yeah. people. And so you're like, I do not want to cause the TPK. Why yeah. don't you just tell me what to do? Like yeah. you you make the decisions. I will fight with my character as best as I can, but I don't want to be the first person opening doors. <laughs> well, there's al- and there's also misconceptions, right? Because today a new player is going to come in and they're going to say, "Hey, it's an RPG," and have a con- an idea in their head because they've been playing video games about what that means, and that's not necessarily exactly what's going on. Exactly. Yeah. I've even noticed that you started calling the- calling D&D a TRPG instead of exactly. just an RPG. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's it's one of those things where there's just it's a way to really distinguish it. Yeah, cuz RPG on its own can mean so so many different things now. You know, it's it's it ranges from World of Warcraft to you know to Skyrim to D anD D, you know, and so you you need that T there to really to differentiate it. On one hand, on one hand, I want to say no, D anD D was first. It gets the moniker RPG, but on the other hand, you, you can't fight culture, right? <laughs> you might as well just make it work. Exactly. So you mentioned earlier about the uh, the three hundred page count uh, rules book here. Um, and that brings me up to uh, my question about price. Th- these mm-hmm. are the most expensive D and D books uh, I will have ever bought. Um, yep. Is is that all a, a matter of page count, or why you know, inflation? Obviously, you know, time has gone by. Why is that? It's a combination of a few things. I mean, obviously, part of it is the business team looks at how much it costs to make the book, mm-hmm. and then they feel, well, here's how much we should be charging. Um, we also know that um, role playing games in the market, the, the prices have steadily gone up. The, um, but I think also for us, a big part of it is when you look at the book, and I have my PDF here now. That I, <laughs> for everyone listening at home, you can't see, but I'm, I'm taking a look at it. We really, we really know, especially in today's market, uh, you need to have a really good visual presence. Um, we have put a lot of time and effort into creating a, a, a visual appearance for the D, for DD, for characters, for monsters. To really help distinguish it, because you know, you said like I'm saying TRPG now because in my day to day business, a lot of the stuff I'm doing is not necessarily tabletop role playing. You know, it, it's a video game, it's other expressions of D and D, and a lot of what we we have seen the, the need for is this idea of to approach D and D not just from say the, the tabletop role playing game as the only perspective, but looking at more as what does D and D mean in the big picture? Uh, you know, as what is it, what is its identity? You know, I think D&D is, when you look at a lot of video games, you know, the past 40 years, there have been so many games that have taken D&D for inspiration, not just in the form of a role-playing game, but through the class names, you know, the fighter, the cleric, the rogue, and the wizard being the core four in your, you know, in, in your role-playing game, uh, video or tabletop or otherwise. And things like, you know, gelatinous cubes and beholders and stuff. It's always, you know, the kind of knockoff versions that show up in other games. So a lot of what we wanted to do was create a real distinct visual identity for D&D rooted in the cultures of the Forgotten Realms, where we can create characters where you look at them and you can instantly go, oh, that's a D&D character. And it's not just that it's distinctly D&D, but it looks really interesting. There's something really distinctive about it. And one of the things with Forgotten Realms that we have is it's a very well-developed world with a lot of of different cultures. There's a wide variety of, you know, it's not just generic European humans everywhere. There's a lot of different places that take inspiration from different uh, time periods and different Earth cultures. The, um, so one of the things we did um, maybe about two years ago now, but it was kind of an on project, was to really go through and flesh out those cultures and the realms. And so when you look through the player's handbook, you're going to see a much more diverse cast of characters. It's not just that kind of generic European look. Um, though there's definitely you know, European-inspired looks because that's part of the realms mm-hmm. too. But a much more diverse cast. An artwork and a level of detail paid to the layout that I think we really haven't seen in a D&D product before. Mm-hmm. The... Um, the design of the books in terms of the layout was just as important to us as the wordsmithing and the rules design. We wanted something where if someone was in the game store and they picked the book up on the shelf and flipped through it, would just draw them into the world. You know, you'll sometimes have fans say, oh, just, just give me black and, you know, black on white, detect, black text on white background and, and line drawings and no art. But that may have worked in the 80s. But today, when you're trying to compete with something, say like a, like a Skyrim, you know, where you're immersed in this like you know this really 
you know, this this Nordic world of you know giants and all the different monsters and the you know when you go into the crypts with the Draugr, it's this real visual. You know, it's really immersive. You really feel like it's a world. Um, we knew we were we were competing against a very high standard set by those non TRPGs and just you know in games in general. You know, in the game store now, you know, when you look at board games, uh, when you look at the physical components, the art, there's been a much higher level, much higher bar that we have to clear these days in order to be compelling. So kind of what that boils down to is we put a lot more money into the art than we've done in the past. We put a lot more effort and resources against that layout and really creating a cohesive layout where the designers are working with the folks doing that layout, that design, to, you know, to for the two to meld together. And again, in a way we really haven't done before. And so I think a lot of that is, you know, it, it, I think that when people see a price point, they have to see it in context. You know, someone uh, I was talking to one of the um, – guys who works on the brand team. And it was interesting to him that when we were, we've been talking to retailers and, and distributors, they haven't really seen the prices anything out of the ordinary because that's a really common price point that they see across the board, whether it's a miniatures game, um, when you're talking about someone making an investment to trading cards, or you see someone buying a board game. Uh, that $50 price point is kind of what people expect these days. So we felt in order, like, you know, with that higher price point comes the obviously responsibility on our end to make a product that's worth it. Mm-hmm. But we also felt that it was a real opportunity for us to make something where if someone picks that book up and they start flipping through it, they're just they're blown away by it. it it's like playing Skyrim. You get you're just immersed into a world, and it's a world that you want to explore more. The um, so I think you know it, it's a lot of things there. You know, it, it's not just like a you know oh we wanted to charge fifty dollars and how can we justify that? Or like we did a spreadsheet at the end of the day it ended up being oh we have to charge fifty bucks a pop for this business to make sense. It was kind of all that all those factors kind of coming together. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it wasn't it wasn't as simple as just saying, "Hey, here's how much we want to charge." You know, how how can we make that work? Um, and it, we knew going in, also, I think with with basic D and D being a free option, and with the way the game's structured, where we kind of see, you know, the starter set is a real entry point that's at twenty bucks. Mm-hmm. Uh, basic D and D being free, it let us maybe aim at a more advanced market, a more uh, well, I don't say market, but you know, people who are more experienced with D and D, harder core fan. Mm-hmm. Really, those core rule books being aimed more at them, where you feel like, hey, I want to spend fifty bucks on D and D because this book looks awesome, and I love this. You know, that hopefully, if we've done our job, everyone, you, know, you love the rules and you love the look of it. But it is a little bit more of a, of a luxury item because the guy who's like, you know, I just want to play some D and D every once in a while, so I'll just buy the starter set and run that. Or you know, the gal who's just like, well, I play in a D and D group, but I'm, I'm never going to spend any money, and I'm not really interested in tinkering with my character. I'm just going to download basic D and D to my tablet. And build a, a cleric using that, and that's all I ever want. You know, we're not trying to get them to buy the player's handbook because they have to. We want them to buy the player's handbook because they go, oh, that looks really cool. I want to own that physical artifact. I want it on my shelf. You know, uh, I want it because it just looks cool. You know, so it's a bit of a different calculus than we've had in the past. So, and I've got a couple of follow ups from, from this conversation now. Um, now, I've seen entries online uh, for the products, and they list a uh, 320 page count for mm-hmm. all three of them. Historic, historically, the DMG and the Monster Manual have been thinner than the Player's Handbook. Are all of them going to be that 320? Yeah, that's right. And that, that's um, for the Monster Manual, um, a lot of that comes down to um, the monster list. Mm-hmm. And also, again, the layout we're doing. Uh, I don't want to talk too much about it until we start previewing the DM, the, the Monster Annual, but uh, it's very exciting. Some of the, the graphic flourishes we're doing and, and the design of the book, it looks. I think it looks fantastic. Okay. The, um, and then for the DMG, a lot of that comes from um, we've had this real vision for it from early on that we wanted the DMG to almost be like a kind of a hacker's guide to the game. Mm-hmm. Um, if you remember Unearthed Arcana for third edition, it was a book filled with optional rules. We're kind of melding that book with the traditional Dungeon Master's Guide. Okay. Say, hey, in the past, DMG's taught you, here's how to run the campaign. Here's how to create your adventures. Here's how to create your campaign. Here's how to handle things at the table. We're kind of adding that and saying, also, here's how to tinker with the game to create the campaign that you want to run. You know, If you want to run a, uh, a, a Game of Thrones-inspired game where combat's brutal and life is cheap, here's how to alter the rules. You know, if you want to run, you know, Greek myth, you know, well, here's how you can make super high magic and super high powered characters, things like that. The um, it kind of goes hand in hand with having a simple system. It makes it much easier for us to make modifications to it without like these really wholesale tinkery kind of things we have to do. 
So so while the price points are higher for two of the books, you're actually getting more than you have for you know than you have in the past. So yeah, exactly. I think especially when we look at the DMG, that's probably. I mean, I don't. I, there's not really a one-to-one comparison, but if you were to say compared to third edition, you're getting a really vision. You're getting a, a, a monster manual with a lot of monsters and a lot more story material mm-hmm. and a lot more visually. It's just more compelling to look at. Um, you're getting, and then you're getting the DMG. You're essentially kind of getting. Uh, be like taking the DMG, adding Unearth Arcana, and then adding pieces from like books like um, oh, what was the name of it? The uh, the Environmental series and things yeah, like. Sure. With is more detail there, so you know, our, our kind of our, our feeling is we wanted to make it the, the core game as complete as possible. You know, so people don't feel they need to buy expansions. You know, if you're buying a supplement because we're doing a cool storyline, and that's you know, you like think oh that'd be a fun campaign to run. So I want to buy the campaign book, and maybe there's like a player's guide or something that goes along with it. It's more based on, you know, this idea of the story driving things where, you know, rather than saying to people, hey, the, the new D&D book is cool because it has this new type of feat, right? If you don't already play the game, that doesn't make any sense to you, right? You don't, know, you don't even know what a feat is. But if people instead are saying, oh, the new D&D book's really cool, it's this adventure where you, you know, uh, you have to travel into, into the, you know, whatever makes it a gun, into the elemental plane of fire and steal, you know, the, the largest diamond in the multiverse from the, the king of the fire lords, you know, something like that. That's maybe cooler to someone who's already maybe played video games or watched Game of Thrones or The Hobbit. You're speaking more language than I understand. They, they might just think, oh, that sounds like a cool story. I'd want to experience that, you know. Now, you said that there's going to be more story and stuff in the Monster Manual, for example. Uh, does that mean we're going to see things like ecology and, and uh, you know, the physiology, stuff we used to see in, like, bestiary sort of thing, uh, organizations, yeah. all that's going to be in there? Yeah, exactly. So, you know what, let me see if I have a file here. I had it on my iPad, but I don't know if I have it here. Let me pull up a sample entry and kind of not read it because I, mean, I don't think it's anymore. Summarize. <laughs> yeah, sure. But the um, uh, I'm not seeing anything. I may have when I moved it over to my iPad. I may have just pulled it off of my laptop. But anyway, but yeah, the idea being that a lot more ink spilled on you know, what is this creature's role in the world? What what is it? You know, how does it interact with other creatures? Uh, it, it's a you know for things that are more like beasts, like yeah, you know, the ecology for like intelligent creatures, they're uh, more their culture. Um, and trying to give things where as a DM, when you're reading it, you might think, oh, I have an idea for an adventure now, or I know how I can work this into my campaign, you know, things like that, the, um, rather than just kind of leading the DM to kind of figure out everything. Uh, we knew kind of the equipment we made was, you know, there's people who say, I don't want any flavor. Just give me the monster. Mm-hmm. But we've always felt like we, you know, that person, if you give them flavor, it's not like they suddenly can't make up their own flavor. Right, that that person can just take the stat block and run with it, you know, create their own story. But for the person who wants to read an interesting story because they're looking for inspiration, if they don't, you don't have the story, then there's just nothing. They're just stuck with the stat block. They're, you're not meeting their needs. Mm-hmm. We kind of push more toward far more to the end of saying, hey, we want we want the the, the monster manual to be the kind of book. I remember talking about this very specifically. Wanted it to feel like the first monster manual that you may have bought as a D and D fan, where it was just fun to read it. Because it was this kind of like it was like this journey of discovery, right? To like make it sound kind of like metaphysical or something like that. Mm-hmm. So every page is like, oh, and what's what's a mind flare? And then you're reading the entry, like, oh, that sounds cool, and and it makes these references to the underdark and these like forgotten subterranean cities and stuff. And then you know you read the Yuan T entry, and it's all about you know these weird snake worshiping humanoids who you know are plotting against humanity. Really trying to bring that back to the monster manual, where when you buy it when it releases in October. We want people to just be able to sit back. Oh no, it's a, it releases in September. Sorry, the um, to just have fun reading it. You know, to just sit down and just start on page one and just start reading and, and really soaking up the real that handcrafted graphic design and the great art and being inspired. You know, we wanted someone to read the monster manual and think, I want to run a DD campaign. I have like thirty ideas, for adventures. You know, because of that interaction between the monsters and how we talk about them and. And we make them feel a little bit more mythical rather than just like these game pieces. The um, I am not seeing the file. I know I had it in here somewhere, but the um, but yeah. So I can't. I, I'm I'm trying to think of a good example off the top of my head. But the um, oh, here we go. I think I found something. I'm opening a file that may or may not be useful <laughs> for people listening. I, I'm on my laptop in a meeting room, and I've got oh no, it's sitting in here. Go. Oh, I'll, here's a great example. The, the uh, Aracocra. So in the past, we talked about the Aracocra is basically... And, and now we know how to pronounce that. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they were like the bird species of D&D. Yeah. You know, you have lizard folk, Aarakocra essentially are bird folk. And in the past, rather than just kind of going, oh, okay, they're bird people and they live in the mountains and that's it, we built up more of a story for them, you know, casting them as, well, okay, these, the Aarakocra, they're generally neutral good. Uh, they're, they're aligned to elemental air because they have this ability that they can summon air elementals. And kind of, well, what's a, how did that happen? What's, what's going on there? And so we crafted a story for them that says, okay, here's their kind of basic society. They don't, they're kind of these communal creatures. They believe in the good, you know, good for all is, you know, what's good for all is good for them. And they're the, ele- the enemies of elemental evil, that they journey to the material plane from the plane of air, and they roost up in the mountains, and they keep watch, that they were essentially watchers for good-aligned elemental factions who are on the watch out for incursions of elemental evil, you know, where the cults might arise and things like that. So if so you're doing a, a Thera's Done campaign, you could, you'd fit them in as allies or whatever. Ex- exactly. No, exactly. And the, the connection you just made there is exactly what we're going for. Yeah. Think, oh, okay, I know how do you, I think I, I can think of some stories where that makes sense, right? Or you could say, oh, okay, if I'm just rolling, say, randomly on a table to stock my world, well, I have some Aarakocra living up here in the mountains. What does that mean? Well, maybe there is an old elemental evil dungeon in there somewhere. Mm-hmm. Or maybe they are suspicious of the people in the town below because they know there's a cult that's taken root. You know, and so the players meet them. You already have an idea of how you might use them. Again, you might decide, I don't want to use any of that. I'm going to be inspired by Flash Gordon, and that's what my Aarakocra are like. They're like, <laughs> what's his name? The uh, Brian Blessed, you know, the Hawk Lord guy there. And stuff. And it's, you can do that. You can just ignore the text. But having the text there helps bring it to life, you know, mm-hmm. for, you know, it's, it's more entertaining. It's more, it gets you thinking. Even if you don't use it, it still might inspire you. Mm-hmm. And then we try to throw in some things like here, one of the things here, like, okay, well, Aarakocra are, are enemies of gargoyles. Because gargoyles are elemental earth. They're earth creatures, you know, stone statues. They're evil. They're cruel. And they fly. And that felt kind of a neat, like, okay, well, you have your bird, you know, your bird folk, basically. And their enemies being these earth creatures that are kind of like, why are earth creatures flying? Well, it's kind of a mockery of the Rococo, right? Like, it's this sort of like, you know, we're earth, elemental earth, but even but we can master the air. Like, we can bring earth into the air and violate your domain and things like that. It's just a sentence, right, or two here about how these guys fight. But again, it's the same kind of thing where when you're thinking of storylines and adventures, it brings some threads into play that you might otherwise not think of. Cool. Now, the other follow-up question, now that we've gone <laughs> well, well <laughs> off on that one. Um, when you were talking about you know what we're getting in the books and, and the artwork, uh, you mentioned an awful lot of the realms. Now, yeah. now there's been talk of the realms being sort of the def- default setting, but it sounds to me from what you're saying is that it's pretty hardwired into the core books. It's more it's more there through the art. You know, the uh, the text itself is uh, it openly acknowledges that you know there's a multiverse of worlds. Uh, we know through our surveys, through our data, most DMs create their own setting. Sure. So we knew we couldn't be so heavy-handed with the realms that you felt like, I can't run this game unless it's a realms game, right? So, for, for instance, I'll, I'll give you guys a little, like, oh, spoiler, you know, kind of, uh, you know, a little preview of something we're doing. But right now in the Player's Handbook, well, right now the, the book is going to print. So in the Player's Handbook, which is getting printed by the, the tens and hundreds of thousands right now, is there's an appendix where we talk about deities of different settings. And so we've got... Let's see right here. I can name all the pantheons. And it's not comprehensive. But yeah, so it leads off the Forgotten Realms campaign uh, with that pantheon because we know that's the most popular setting of our published settings. But then we have Greyhawk deities, uh, Dragonlance deities, uh, Eberron deities. Then we have an entry for just like some of the typical deities for some of like uh, like um, like gnomes, you know, and dwarves, like the player character races, uh, Sehu again, uh, giants, you know, so we have an entry for them. And then we go, we actually even then provide um, suggestions for um, like the Celtic myth, uh, Greek deities, you know, the domains and symbols and alignments. So if you wanted, you know, it kind of gives you a DM. You might use that, that, that pantheon. You might just kind of use it as an inspiration for creating your own. The, um, the biggest influence of the realms um, in terms of kind of what we hard-coded in uh, is really from the visuals is using drawing from uh, this comprehensive art Bible we created for the realms. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, I shouldn't say comprehensive because the realms is enormous. We basically covered the Sword Coast, <laughs> which is like a, a, a third, not even a third, a third of the <laughs> the, um, But what that let us do was we went through in a lot of these key cultures and um, really focused on the appearance of like the people from the culture, their equipment, how they dress, what makes them unique. 
And what that lets us do, and uh, for people, we, we actually had a conversation offline, so this is going to tie into some stuff <laughs> we talked about. So hopefully our hosts don't doze off. But the, uh, the, uh, it lets us really pr- present uh, uh, characters who are much more diverse and I think are much more visually interesting than the stereotypical like Western European fantasy. Because in the past, if we said, okay, we want a fighter. Uh, if we're going to do an art order or art order for a fighter, we can describe a human fighter. We can do all sorts of detail and, and try to like make a really unique, visually distinct character. But a lot of times, artists will see kind of the big picture, like you know the big elements. Okay, human fighter. Okay, and then maybe gender, right? And then there, a lot of times, they'd kind of default to what they knew, which would be kind of like this Western European look. Um, what we've done now is, with the realms as our starting point, we can't create an art order that says human fighter. Because that would be like saying, um, you know, I'm casting a movie and I need a male human as the lead. Like, well, what does that even mean? Like, is it a, what kind of movie you're making, right? What is what is this person? Who's the character? So, so we're kind of forcing ourselves. Well, we have to give you a culture. We have to give you a region. We have to say, okay, we want. And I'll give you an example. I think we have a cleric in here who is okay. We want someone from, and I'll probably mispronounce it because I always mess up some of the, the realms. But we want someone from the Shu Empire which is kind of like a Japanese and uh, Chinese-inspired culture in the realms. But this is someone who is exiled to the Sword Coast, and so they've been living in Waterdeep for a while, and that's kind of the dress they've adopted, and they're a cleric of, let's say, Lathander. And so you end up with a character who looks really distinct. It's very unique. It's not just generic cleric and chainmail, and it's some white European guy. It's like, okay, it's someone who looks... You know, in the real world, look like maybe they're they're from China, but they're wearing this kind of interesting kind of because it's water deep. It's a little bit of a Western European feel there to the armor, but then they have this like sun and, and fire motif in their holy symbol and their garb that really makes them look distinct. You know, there's a lot of stuff if you're looking at the image, you can pick out a lot of these details that make that character very unique. You know, instead of just oh, it's another guy in chainmail, it's another Viking looking guy with an axe and a shield and a horde helmet and a chainmail shirt, right? It's it's giving us a, 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 a catalog or a vocabulary of visuals to draw on that make our art and our characters much more distinct. The, uh, and that's important to me because I think the, um, you know, you look at gaming and it's becoming more and more mainstream. It's no longer just, you know, people like me, right, a, a white guy in his 30s who is playing games. It's everybody now. And so I think that's a it, – it's – it's a good way to show how diverse D&D really is and how diverse the realms is. And really, it's a game that anyone can play. The, uh, and and I, I'm really happy with that because I think it's something that's very easy to fall back into that safe comfort zone of like, well, no one will object if we did, you know, stereotypical, you know, European-looking fantasy. Well, no one? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, right? Well, you can't, right. These days, that's people are more aware of it now. And I think that's, and I think it's something that's good. It shows gaming's growing, you know? And I think that, Use, I think the realms was a real useful resource for that because I think otherwise it would have been hard, you know, to, to come up with, to come up with some. I mean, I think for to really have a diverse palette of cultures, you need a starting point, you need a foundation. Because uh, it's very easy for people to just kind of default to what they know, what, what they think is safe. Yeah, exactly. Because I've, I've had this conversation like with uh, John Chinetti when he was still there, and and a bunch of art directors in the business, and a lot of it too is like the artists want to make sure they get paid and they get a job again, so yeah. they don't have um, a reason to take too much of a chance either. Exactly. So so they look at what currently is out there. What currently out there is mostly Western European, so they'll continue to create that because they think exactly. that's what's wanted. So this yeah. helps break that cycle. No, one hundred percent. It's a, it is. It's definitely. It's definitely a cycle that's there, because yeah, you're right. It's one hundred percent right. You don't. You know, if 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 you're giving people what they've seen before, you're not taking a risk, which means yeah, it is easier to get that next gig. Or no one's going to get upset with you for doing the thing everyone expected. You know that you would do. Right. Yeah, so and nobody intends to keep doing it, but it, it's what had happened. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's not. It's. I don't think there's like a conscious like desire to do it that way. But yeah, it's just. It's. It's just the way things have kind of evolved. So I think it's been important for us to, to kind of take, take on the role of being more active and saying, here's how we want to do things. You know, the, um, and I think at the end of the day, it just, um, like I said, I'm looking through the player book as a PDF right now, and I'm, just, I'm so happy with just the art is just visual. It's just so interesting. The, uh, the characters we have as examples, just, they just have this sense of story about them. Or you, you know, they're from someplace, and they're going someplace, and they're unique individuals. They're not just cookie-cutter representations of, you know, generic fighter or generic wizard. Maybe you should just email that PDF over to us so we can figure <laughs> out what you're, what you're talking about. <laughs> 
So yeah. speaking of PDFs mm-hmm. and all things digital, uh, I have a player at my table who says he is going to refuse to play D&D next if there is not strong digital support. He, he wants to be able to have at least like a compendium sort of thing so he mm-hmm. can look things up and, and all, get all of his rules support that way. Can you talk a little bit about digital plans? Yeah, so I can't go into too many details, but I, I can say we have a partner we're working with. Um, Trapdoor Technologies. Uh, just last weekend at Origins in Columbus, um, they showed off. It was it was a closed test. It was basically a closed. Uh, you know, you had to sign an NDA to play. Um, but they are working on a set of tools um, the that were usable on iPad. Uh, that was during the test. What they had everyone using. Uh, the DM had a, a set of tools. The players had their tools to create and manage characters. Um, one of the things that was I, I don't want to go into too many details because a lot of it is what you know Trapdoor is working on. It they're mm-hmm. a licensee, they have a schedule they're working against. Um, but I can say you know when we got the uh, proposal for them, we were really impressed with, the, with what they had in mind. Uh, that's why we're, one of the reasons we're working with them. And so it's pretty exciting stuff. But we can't really go into details yet because oh, I mean, first of all, of course, obviously you know we have a track record. We we've learned the hard way to not. <laughs> <laughs> but also like you know, I, and I think this is something where you know the, the folks at Trapdoor would agree. We're we're trying to take it slow and get everything tested. You know, they brought it to Origins to get. Hey, let's have people basically off the street, you know, gamers off the street, try this out and get some feedback from them. Um, so they're being very measured in how they're rolling things out. Um, obviously, it's it's a big project, um, but our goal is definitely yeah we want we want to have tools available. We know that you know computers are a thing uh, these days. Oh, you know, and tablets and iOS. You know the. Uh, and so a lot of ways we're learning from what we did with 4th edition and a lot of that informed what we were looking for for 5th for in terms of tools and digital support. So, yeah, so we're excited. But, yeah, we don't want to go into too much detail now because, you know, obviously as you're testing, you might find some features are working out, some features aren't working out, so maybe you got to save them for later and stuff. So we don't want to get ahead of the game. But we but. shouldn't expect less support for 5th than we had for 4th. No, I, I would definitely say that. Yeah, I would definitely say we we, have, we are definitely, especially with platforms and with features we're looking for, you know, that real integration without forcing people to use digital. I mean, that was one of the things we talked we talked about very early on. You know, was mm-hmm. we wanted someone some one person to have an iPad and be completely digital. Someone else could be a mix, and someone another play at the table could just be pure paper and pencil. You know, mm-hmm. we, we want that. That's definitely a big part of it. So and and not iOS only. Uh, that is correct. We're looking at we don't we want to be on more platforms than just that. Mm-hmm. So. Okay, uh, that that will uh, reassure him. I think <laughs> you got one player, <laughs> one down. <laughs> uh, and, and speaking of um, digital, uh, and maybe you can't talk about this yet, but PDFs. Ah, uh, yeah, I can't can't talk about that. Ah, okay. <laughs> Didn't figure. Okay. Um, so the basic game, you've talked a little bit about the basic game and why you're putting it out and why it's free and all that. Um, we had on, I think it was on our, one of our news desk episodes when, when it was announced uh, that the basic game was going to be free and all that. We had a, a, a conversation about possible connections from the basic game and licensing hmm. and how the basic game wondering or contemplating whether the basic game will sort of be like the SRD of the new license. Is there yeah. a connection there? The, um, it, it's, it's a little too early to talk about that, uh-huh. but definitely one of the things is I, I did a lot of, a lot of D20 and OGL work back mm-hmm. in the day. There would definitely be some advantages to having a, a simple core to start from rather than trying to get everyone to like work from you know, the entire system, you know, put into one place. So we, we don't have um, we don't have anything to announce yet, um, but I think basic was was really started by the idea more of just having that free layer. The um, and if it does have any role in anything like licensing going forward, that'll be more happenstance than than by design. Okay. The, um, but yeah, so really, and actually it was interesting because one of the things you know for basic, you know, I know we kind of thought about well, how many classes do we, we want to put in it? How many races? It really was aimed at being you know here is the simplest distillation of the game possible. You know, so it doesn't have things like the warlock or the you know those other classes beyond the core four. The um, so there would be some issues that if we wanted to do something, you know, with, with a license, you know, well, does that mean people third parties can't use the classes beyond those four? Things like that. So it really is more aimed at like this is enough for you to run a campaign and play D anD D, and it's got just enough in terms of the complexity. I think if there was anything for actual development work, I mean, you could definitely design using just that. But you'd probably need a little bit more of the system to feel like you're getting, you know, the full benefits of working mm-hmm. with. 
and uh, kind of related to licensing, we recently talked to Steve Winner and Wolfgang Bauer. Oh, yeah? Uh, yeah, about uh, the Tyranny of Dragons. And we were wondering if uh, we might expect more work sent out to studios like Cobalt Press in the way that was. Yeah, so we're really happy with Cobalt. They, they, those guys did a great job. And I think the um, – you will, I think – oh, I'll think. I know you're, you're definitely going to see more of that in the future. Uh, one of the things it really lets us do is um, as a team, we work with a lot of different games. You know, we have the MMO that uh, Cryptics is working on. We have a number of other projects in the works that we really can't talk about yet. Um, one of the great things of working with someone like like Wolfgang or, or, or Steve is like they can focus on just that one project twenty four seven. You know, or you know, well, obviously they might have a day job, but <laughs> they're they're doing their creative time. They're focused on that one adventure. Um, one of the things we've definitely found is when you work in a corporate environment like here, you know, Wizards, there's a lot of distractions. There's a lot of meetings. There's a lot of things. You know, you're juggling multiple projects at once. So working with a studio like that, you know, with with an RPG publisher is great because it lets them they can really focus their time and energy on that. And we can focus more on being more of a support organization. You know, like we can get the story bibles to them that have, you know, the key art and the storylines. Uh, we can answer their rules questions. You know, if something comes up and they're not sure how to, you know, how does this work with that? We have the rules experts here who can help them with that. And it lets us also focus more on the big picture. Um, at Origins last week and in my uh, Legends and Lore that's going to post, um, it'll be the 23rd, I think. So uh, before they hear this. Oh, okay, yeah. So, <laughs> so it'll be in the archive. Because yeah. <laughs> we, we talk about this idea of the living rules set, you know, where D&D is a game that has the core rules, has the classes and stuff, and uh, really using like a directed process for determining, you know, if something needs to be eroded, how, how are we going to do that? Um, if a class isn't good enough, you know, it's too weak or, you know, it's people like playing it, how can we alter it to make sure it's hitting the notes it's supposed to, things like that? We can focus more on that big picture management. And the, the article goes into a lot more detail, but it basically boils down to rather than letting a rata be driven by, well, we're hearing people in the forum say this or in our own games, here's what we're seeing, taking the process that we use with the playtest and applying that to the rules once they're published, where once a year, you know, a big server that says, hey, come through and rate everything in the game. How do you feel about it? You know, are you, are you playing this class? Yes, no. What do you think about it? You know, rate it from one to five. Rate each portion. And the real strength of that is not necessarily that first survey. You know, there probably will be things that maybe come out that we would want to look at. But we can see over time how people's relationship with the game is changing. And we can see where things are going. Um, here's a great example. And not, this is just a theoretical, right? But imagine if we, uh, I'll just pick a class, the Druid. If we find that, you know what, no one's playing Druids. Uh, the people we're playing aren't happy, you know. And, but everyone wants to play Druids. Okay, well, that kind of tells us that there's something going on here. We need to do something to address it. And we can come up with a more organic approach where rather than saying, okay, it's time to hit the button on the next edition, it's more, well, maybe we need to do uh, in the next source book we work on, we need to offer some variant druid abilities. Um, or, well, maybe we do want to make a change to the druid in the core. Well, we want to first start by playtesting that, by telling the community, hey, we got the results in and people are not happy with the druid. And here's why we think people aren't happy with the druid. And so here's what we're going to work to address, you know. And then a few months later, showing here's some mechanics to play test. Here's a new take in the class, and then, you know, getting feedback based on that. So it's much more like an ongoing conversation where we're changing things only if there's a real clear call for that to happen, and then we're making changes that met, that match with what people where people want to see things go, you know. And so that kind of frees us up to focus on stuff like that rather than the day to day. Okay, now we have to work on the next book and the next manuscript and things like that. It lets us take a bigger picture view of things. So does that mean you're, you're a little more hands-off than if you were to just do the same thing through freelancers? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because we know, you know people like, like uh, Steve Winter and Wolf Bauer, they, they can manage themselves. You know, they don't need us looking over their shoulder all the time. We can be more of that resource. And they also bring things like you know, they, can do, they can commission art. You know, they can go out and find the art that matches their vision for the adventure or whatever material they're working on rather than it being, okay, uh, I'm a writer. I've created this adventure. Now I'm going to send it to Wizards. Someone at Wizards is going to go through, and I'm going to, they're going to look through my art order. Then, then the art director is going to take it, and they're going to figure out what art they're actually going to commission and all this other stuff. Mm-hmm. It's a much more unified vision, creative vision behind it, because you have one person or one small group of people working on everything. And then if there's freelancers, it's going to be through the studios, not necessarily through Wizards. Yeah, exactly, okay. exactly. You know, it's an approach that again kind of mirrors what we try to do with the core rule books, where we're really integrating you know, the people working on, on the design of the book 
literally designed in the sense of like you know the game design, the visual design, the graphic design, you know the art and everything. It's it's a much more integrated process now, where it's all you know everything is complementing the other the other part rather than things being siloed. Okay. Now you you've talked about this frees you up to be able to focus on other things, and that leads into the next question, which has to do with the fact that the D and D brand. Um, there's been a lot of conversation as the the prep for fifth edition has been has been coming out about how the D and D brand seems to be leveraging more and mo- being leveraged more and more in other ways beyond the RPG with toys and uh, possible movies and comics and video games and novels and all those other things all all the things that make the the, st- the visual bible necessary and all that kind of stuff. Um, how does that impact the RPG? No, does, yes. it, does it become secondary, or is it? You know, yeah. Talk about that. So the, the RPG is is always will always be the the, the centerpiece of D anD D, if not as like the biggest part of the business. You know, always in terms of like the emotional resonance of it. You know, you can think, kind of think of it almost like comic books for Marvel. Marvel will always be known as as a comic book company. You know, their cats where their characters started, and that's what like that's what distinguishes them. So the the tabletop role playing game will always be like that real centerpiece of of, of D anD D. But what it really means for the, for the role-playing game is we're taking, uh, and we've said this a lot in a lot of places, but it's, it's because it's true. We're taking a much more story-based approach to things. We're thinking more in terms of how can we get you to play, say, I'm going to use role-playing games as the example, but this applies to a lot of the other stuff we're doing. How can we get you to, to pick this up? Not by trying to sell you on like, the technical specs, you know, like, oh, you should play D&D because it has classes and levels and hit dice and this other stuff, but instead saying, hey, you should play D&D because if you play D&D, you get to go on this adventure where you're going to fight this invading army of dragons led by this the, the dragon, the five-headed dragon goddess and her fanatical cultists. And they're trying to enter the world and take it over. And only you and your friends can stop them. You know, things like that. Where you don't need to know anything about a role-playing game to hear that and go, oh, that sounds pretty cool. I, I want to check that out. You know, kind of like how you look at uh, uh, video games. You know, uh, Mass Effect is a really cool game. But, you know, and there are people who like the system behind it, but I think you get most people to play it by going, oh, I get to be, you know, I get to travel all over the galaxy and battle aliens and uncover this weird, you know, this cosmic threat to all life in the galaxy. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, that, that is what gets people interested. Um, because at the end of the day, the story, you know, whether you think of role-playing games as a story or not, you know, there's all these different thoughts on it. But at the end of the day, it's the content that that is what gets you interested, not necessarily the format, you know, not that it's... Armor class goes up or down. It's more like, oh, what's the adventure we're going on? Because uh, we see when people talk about um, stuff from D&D that still resonates with them, especially you know, for longtime fans, it's things like Tomb of Horrors. You know, it's the adventures. It's the settings. It's, it's the stuff that when you're playing the game, that's the stuff you're really interacting with. And that's the stuff that's really important. The rules really are just there to enable the play of the game. Mm-hmm. The, um, and so I'll use a con- concrete example. If you look at Tyranny of Dragons... For Tyranny, we created a, a story bible. So it's basically those visuals, you know, here's what the, the dragon cultists look like, the cult of the dragon. Here what some of our key villains look like. Here's the half-dragon master of, you know, of black dragons, things like that. Um, and then we obviously, you know, there's like some text and, you know, just summarizes the story and summarizes what's going on. And then what we do is we take that and we sent it over, in this case, to, to Cobalt Press, to Wolfgang Bar, And Wolf could take that. And then create a campaign saying, okay, given these characters, given these factions, um, given what's going on, here is the, the, the role-playing game campaign that, he, that I'm going to write and put together you know, for us, obviously for Wizards to sell. So you could, you could think of it as really what it's doing is we're creating almost like the, um, the, the, this really like high-level source book for a, a tabletop role-playing game campaign. And then a studio takes it and then creates the actual campaign that you can run, like the, the campaign-length adventure. Because you know, a tyranny goes from like levels 1 to 15 between the two, the two volumes. Right. So it, really what it means is we're emphasizing more this idea of like buying that all-in-one campaign and really emphasizing, like, well, what's cool about D&D this year is, and then describing, here's the, here's the, here's the, here's the campaigns. Yeah, exactly. Here's then, this. then do you give that same story bible to the the video game, the Neverwinter Studio, and the same thing to to the novel? Well, I guess you, we don't haven't heard about any novels yet, but it's still, it's the same thing that gets passed on to all the different aspects. Exactly. So everyone's drawing from the same well, and so what it lets us do is like when we have the WizKids miniatures coming out with the launch of Fifth, you're going to see a lot of the same, like the the, the Cult of the Dragon, um, you know, the, the miniature is going to look like the art that you see in the adventure. 
you know, because they both started like, you know, about a year ago from the same spot. Mm-hmm. You know, so we don't have to like, oh, we have to complete the entire role playing game adventure. And once that's done, then we have to get the art commission. Then we can hand the hard art over to WizKids and then they can make the miniatures. You know, there's a, there's a shared starting point. So everyone knows, well, if I hit these notes, I'm going to be aligned with everything else. And it's going to make sense to, to D&D fans. Right on. So now talk about the – in a related thing, talk about the – the drive to leverage the brand into other areas. You know, uh, you know if, if, if the role-playing game is the heart and soul of, of what D&D is, why do we need the other stuff other than, hey, it's cool to have a T-shirt or you know, comic books or whatever? Yeah, I think, I think there's a couple reasons for that. Uh, the first and the obvious one is obviously you need, you need to play D&D. You know, and the number, one, the number one by far thing we hear from people, like, why did you stop playing D&D? I couldn't find a group to play with anymore. I moved, or my group fell apart, or the DM moved, or people got too busy. So we know that people want to play D&D. They want to explore our worlds and stuff, but they don't always have the ability to get a, a, a gaming group together. So they want to play things like a video game or a board game and things like that that are incorporate, they incorporate the things about D&D that they love in a way that resonates and feels true to it, but doesn't require them to say necessarily create a campaign and have those free hours and that, that number, you know, the gaming group they can meet regularly. So I think there's just a real demand there. And I think when you look back in D&D's history, this actually isn't anything new, right? If you look back in the 80s, mm-hmm. um, TSR had uh, – they, they, they did board games. Uh, you know, they launched, obviously, the novel line. Um, they had video games you know, on the Intellivision, then the SSI Gold Box games. So this is something that I think that you know, even you know, TSR back in the 80s, they figured out you know, that even at the height of you know, the role-playing fad – it still wasn't easy to get a gaming group together. I mean, I remember back when I was in middle school and was really playing a lot of D&D, I still probably spent far more time playing computer games or games on my NES than I did, you know, getting my three or four or five friends who played D&D together to actually play the game. The, um, so that's, that's a big part of it. And I think the, the other half of it is the, um, you, you just think in terms of entertainment, you know, and how much things have changed. Uh, tablets, you know, didn't exist just a few years ago. And now, you know, they're the big thing. Uh, smartphones, uh, Angry Birds, mobile gaming, you know, things like that. By being flexible, by really focusing on story rather than saying, oh, this is the mechanic that defines us, it puts us in a much better position when that the next big change happens. To be in a position to go, okay, now we can create a game or we can work with a partner to bring D&D to that platform rather than being really hidebound and saying, no, all we do is just the tabletop role-playing game. Whatever the next, you know, whether it's like, you know, Oculus Rift or whatever, you know, oh, well, how can we bring the tabletop role-playing game to the Oculus Rift? Well, no, instead of saying the tabletop role-playing game, it's awesome as the thing I'm playing at a table with my friends. You know, uh, in, you know instead of saying, well, we can make a different game. We can just take all the things, the story elements that make D&D interesting and have that appeal to people and just, you know, make a new game that fits in with that platform or you know, whatever kids, you know, the, the younger generation likes this style of game or whatever. Mm-hmm. We don't have to try to strong arm everyone. It's kind of like what I said earlier, but you know, we don't want to strong arm people into buying things. We want to entice them into it. Mm-hmm. We know there are plenty of people who love fantasy gaming, but they just don't want to play a tabletop role playing game. So rather than try to get them, you know, obviously you want people to play the tabletop role playing. It's great. And it's the best gaming, best type of game you can play, but it's not for everybody. So we can be more like, oh, we can be more, I guess, accommodating to people and be more flexible. And Angry Birds just put out an RPG. You missed an opportunity yes. there. It could have been Angry Birds D and D. there's even D and D classic uh, classes. You know, it's the rogue and the and the cleric and the druid. You know. So our last question is, what is going to surprise people when the new edition comes out? Oh, I think what's going to surprise them is really I, I, the, the 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 design of the books. The in terms of like the, the, the visuals, I think they're going to see something they haven't seen before out of D anD. d And I think they're also going to be surprised. You know, I, I've seen a lot of skeptics about how uh, uh, about how modular the game's actually going to be. It's all. I mean, that's always been our goal, especially when the DMG comes out. I think people are going to really really be surprised at the breadth of material we're presenting there, and then within the character classes. How much we've done, even just the player's handbook, to give a real range of, of, of complexity, you know, from the simplest fighter to the really complicated fighter and, you know, and, and the different classes and everything in between. The, uh, I think it's going to really surprise people because I, uh, I think there was always this kind of uh, skepticism that we were serious when we said that. And, uh, and we were. And that, that was always one of the big design goals. The, um, so, yeah, I think, that, I think that's going to be a, a pleasant surprise for people. Very so. good. 
And uh, we'll talk more again at Gen Con, if nothing else, right? And, and when, yeah, when this is all coming out and we can kind of uh, chew the fat with you about, about what's, what we're actually seeing now. Exactly. We actually have books in our hands to look yeah. at. Very good. Well, thanks for coming on, Mike. Cool. Thanks for having me. And we'll talk to you later. Cool. Take it easy. So we'd like to say a thank you to Mike Mills for joining us and to all of you for supporting the show by using the links at thetomeshow.com when you shop at Amazon and D&D Classics. And if you want to get a hold of us, you can email thetomeshow at gmail.com or call the biz line at 919-BIZ-TOME. That's 919-B-I-Z-T-O-M-E. And you can find show notes for this episode and all kinds of other great Tome Show shows all available over at thetomeshow.com. And that is episode 239, where we've been sent off to the printers and are eagerly anticipated by the world at large as we talk to Mike Rolls about the 5th edition of D&D on this episode of... The Tome, The Tome, The Tome, The Tome, The Tome, The Tome. I'm on the wall.